Imagine, if you will, Times Square in the late 1970s where a young man sits in Nathan's hot dogs thinking about a monster in a basket. Determined to make his first feature-length commercial horror movie, aspiring filmmaker Frank Hennenlauter needed to come up with a reason why a regular guy would carry around a basket containing the creature Hennenlauter envisioned as a malignant jack-in-the-box. There, downing hot dogs amid the 42nd Street grunge and grime that had shaped his filmic sensibilities, it finally dawned on him. The boy and the monster in the basket would be brothers. It's Belial in the Basket on this week's episode as we discuss the 1982 splatter comedy, Basket Case. just came crawling across the floor at me okay that's a bad omen <laughs> when have we ever had a good omen god let's damn it. be oh. honest oh my god now he's coming <laughs> towards me all right fuck off kill it oh my god i'm not gonna kill it. it's on the carpet <sighs> you guys are smashing pussies just into the kill carpet. him i'm not a commie okay we i don't have a gun which is the american like preferred method of disposing of spiders shooting them with a pistol but okay. <laughs> hold on Oh, fuck. Okay, I'm just gonna ignore him and then hope he doesn't come towards me. Honestly, let's leave this in. I think this is quality <laughs> content. This is like an audio drama. He's just chilling, like he's allowed to be inside my house. He just wants to hear the podcast. Okay, all right. Well, let's let's give him a good show, and he's then I can our kill producer. Him afterwards, he can enjoy his last few moments learning about, um, you know, location shooting in Times Square. <laughs> So tell me, what are you doing in Flynn's Falls? I'm a sorter. A sorter what? No, a letter sorter. I sort mail. You're a mailman? <laughs> That's great. There's something else I've been dying to ask you. What's in the basket? My brother. Hi, welcome to What's in the Basket. I'm Tiff, and this week I'm presenting Basket Case, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Amelia. Hi. And Candice. Hello. All right. All right, let's crowd around Frank's hot dog stand and get into it. So for this one, we are going back all the way to 1950 to the birth of writer-director Frank Henenlotter in New York City. He grew up in Long Island and had, by his own account, a pretty average, middle-class, mid-century North American childhood. He started experimenting with his dad's 8mm film camera as a child and made movies about monster hamburgers. So he got into movies pretty early and started seeing exploitation films, in particular, very early on, which of course were cheaply made independent movies that rejected the censorship of the then-failing Hollywood studio system and embraced, you know, blood and gore and sex and nudity, so perfect stuff for a kid. Now, initially Frank was seeing these movies in his own neighborhood, but around the age of 15, he branched out to 42nd Street in Manhattan. Now, 42nd Street had begun as New York's sort of legitimate theater district in the Gilded Age through the 1920s. But the rise of movies and radio during the Depression in the 1930s, as well as just the sort of financial pressures of the Great Depression, were a blow to legitimate theater, and respectable live entertainment gave way to, like, burlesque. 
Then through the late 1930s and the 1940s, it was sort of the focus of an anti-burlesque campaign, which saw it become more of a movie theater district that catered to the working class. And then that underwent another reinvention in the 50s with the rise of television, which made, you know, movies were far less viable. From there on into the 1960s, 42nd Street became home to, you know, sex shops, peep shows, prostitution, the drug trade, and a lot of grindhouse theaters, which were theaters that played the exploitation films Frank loved all day long. Now, of course, Frank is 15 years old at this point. He's still just a kid, and he is alone on 42nd Street just watching movies. Dirty movies. Great parents, I has it. <laughs> he sounds like a standard product of the New York public school system. <laughs> uh, he claims he never had any trouble, which I don't know. I mean, is he the most reliable witness? That's true. We we've had questions the last time we attempted to do an episode about this movie with regard to how much we can trust anything that Frank Henenlotter says. But yeah, he says. My parents never knew where I went. I just loved that I was leaving the clean sunshine of Long Island for the dark, grim 42nd Street. I used to carry a little piece of paper and write down start times and see how many I could cram in. There was a laundry lady at one theater. She was, I guess, a homeless woman. She would be there in the morning when the theater first opened. She must have done her laundry in the ladies' room and would bring out her garments, go to the first two rows, and she would put her wet clothes on the back of the seats. And then she would stand in the aisle guarding the clothes. And if anybody would try to go there, she'd start screaming. And then at the intermission, she'd turn the clothes over. I tell you, sometimes watching her was more fascinating than watching the film. So this is kind of how he describes his 42nd Street. And that's not everybody's 42nd Street. I think a lot of people were getting, like, stabbed. Isn't that when the torso ripper is, like, or whatever his name was? That guy who was beheading girls in hotel rooms? Like, I think, like, literally in that neighborhood. And he, like, lit them on fire. Meanwhile, Frank Hennelaar was like, oh, boy, this is a great vacation. <laughs> so... Frank manages, I guess, to get through his adolescence without getting fucking shanked on 42nd Street. He's seen all these exploitation movies. The first movie he makes, or the first one that I found that he talks about in depth, is a mockumentary called Slash of the Knife. And this is a parody of 1950s sex ed films, and it's about the evils of being uncircumcised. And it's set in 1952. It extolled the virtues of circumcision and the horrors of being uncircumcised. And it tells the story of an uncircumcised protagonist who ultimately descends into madness. And so this is where he meets Kevin Van Hentenrich, who was at the time a 20-something actor studying at the American Institute of Dramatic Arts in New York City. And Candace had some issues with that. Because it's the American Academy of Dramatic Arts. But I also will take Kevin's side. It, I mean, he might have been, it might have been like some guy's basement in, <laughs> in Bushwick, you know, and it was 25 bucks a semester and it was called, you know, the American Institute of Dramatic Arts. I, it's entirely possible. So Kevin is introduced to Frank by uh, Ilza Balladis, who played the social worker in Basket Case. And he played three roles in Slash of the Knife, and I quote, a wedding guest, an inmate in an institution, and another role he doesn't remember. So he knows there were three. He can't remember what the third one was. And the reason he doesn't know is because to this day, he's never seen a full cut of the movie, and Henenlotter insists he will never release it. It's just gonna, it's like me and this podcast. I'm never going to hear a full episode. <laughs> and again, I, I don't trust the the discerning taste of head and lauder when the man made frankenhooker so it can't I, <laughs> slash of the knife can't i mean it's gotta be pretty let, bad let the people decide like i'm not gonna release it just let it play at film forum and then just you know let it let it gain its underground following and then release it on you know blu-ray a couple of years later so all the weird completists can have their t-shirts or whatever and are so we you, can talk about it on the podcast. Are you one of these weird completists, Candace? I am one of these weird yeah. completists. I want to know what the virtues of circumcision are in this <laughs> context. 
I want to know why he's so passionate about the subject. It is a weird circumcised. It's a weird thing. Is he a circumcised like, person? <laughs> I I don't know that. Couldn't I'm tell you. Is is Frank him. Helen Alotta circumcised? We need to know. <laughs> I brought you some goodies, but first breakfast. So during the filming of Slash of the Knife, Henenlotter met Edgar Evans, and they began talking about making a commercial horror film. According to Henenlotter, I had nothing in mind because the movies I made were not horror movies. They were sick, twisted comedies. So I got to thinking. Horror movies. Paranoid, that's been done. Psycho, been done. Basket case. Oh. So his initial idea was a monster in a basket, but he needed a reason why Dwayne would carry it around. On that, he says, I immediately had the image of a monster in a basket, and it was so preposterous an idea, so funny, I just loved the idea of a malignant jack-in-the-box. Trouble was that I couldn't work out why a normal guy would walk around with a monster in a basket. It didn't make sense. Then one night, there I was, hanging out in Times Square, eating hot dogs, and it just came to me. What if they're brothers? Suddenly I had a plot, and the movie just wrote itself. Right, I need a I need a plot for a horror movie. Let's open the old thesaurus like I'm back in university having to write a thesis. Uh, all right, Psycho, Paranoid, Basket Case. There's not a film with that name. Right, now I've got semblance of a plot. I'm going out to eat hot dogs. What do – who eats hot dogs? Brothers eat hot dogs. They're brothers. That is essentially his formulation of plot. That's – it's completely where this movie came from. Incredible. 100%. And I love that the issue with this, with this, like, conceit is that, like, he doesn't understand yet, he hasn't, he hasn't discovered the bond between Dwayne and Belial, and not, like, the obvious problem here, which is that it's a sentient, possibly (laughs) circumcised (laughs) hunk of beef. (laughs) I mean, Belial gives a very compelling performance, but it could have gone terribly wrong. So he's got this, this foolproof idea for his movie. And who does he call but Kevin Van Henrik from Slash of the Knife, who played three characters very well, I'm sure, <laughs> and outline the script over the phone, and Kevin jumps at the chance. He's like, hell yeah. So we've got the plot, we've got the monster, and we've got a star. Hennen Lauder claims to have had $8,000 in the bank. I can't, I didn't write down what we found as to how much that is in 2019. I believe it was like 62 grand, something like that. Okay, so Evans matches that. And then others are contributing throughout shooting. And it takes four years to make this movie because they keep running out of money. It's all those hot dogs. It's all those hot dogs. So they get into this cycle of filming until there's no money left and screening the rough cut to raise more money. And this ultimately costs them $35,000 at the time, which is $97,000 today. I'm not sure where all that money went. Imagine being in that like test screening and someone is asking you to fund the rest of this movie, like this rough cut, and you're just sitting there just like, what the fuck is happening? Do I want to give them money? Why should I give them money? Is that thing circumcised? I don't know. Like, <laughs> And, like, you know, I mean, film is expensive, you know, editing, editing is expensive, assuming he had a professional editor do it and not, like, Kevin, which is <laughs> possible. I've never really watched the credits of Basket Case, but... Um, <laughs> I think the hot dog budget was just swelled considerably. Yeah, it was all hot dogs. And, and I, I think feel... that's why the 16, a.k.a. 62 grand, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that's where it all went. I think it went to his, you know, his pork budget. Well, it was that. And the I feel like he spent a lot of money on the animation. I mean, yeah. more than he should have because he wasn't a professional animator. That's the only reason no. why they spent a lot of money on it. I feel like half the shooting days were dedicated to the scene, the slow motion, you know, I mean, the, uh, the uh, stop motion yeah. sequence in the hotel room. Yeah. Which makes sense. So, Yeah, because he wasn't a fucking animator. He was just a guy who'd never done it before. He's <laughs> like, oh, sh- fuck, this is hard. Keep hit, just hitting stop, pause, whatever. I don't know. How do you film a movie? <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. We're going to edit that out. Okay, keep going. Yeah. Okay. Leave it in. <laughs> So he claims he didn't set out to make a bad movie. He wanted to make it look like a, quote, real movie, but realized that was impossible with his budgetary limitations. 
again, he had a pretty decent chunk of change here. I don't know if that's true or if it's more how he handled his budget, but uh, figures out he's not making it a real horror movie, decides to make it a bottom-of-the-barrel grindhouse movie that he thinks no one will ever see. They film it on 16mm because they can't afford 35mm. They can't afford permits and spend the entire production rushing through scenes to avoid run-ins with the police. Which is exactly how, if we ever make a movie, it will be filmed. Yeah, absolutely. So again, he's not spending the money on permits. Nobody's union, I'm assuming. (laughs) So where did all the money, all the money went into hot dogs, hot dogs and making Belial shake that nasty thing (laughs) in the Fleabag Hotel? Important PSA, kids join your union. This is where we begin our communist manifesto portion of the show. But like the indoctrination. (laughs) And permits are a big deal when filming in New York. I just, I feel like he wasn't on the up and up in any capacity. No, absolutely not. (laughs) And again, I also like the idea, you know, it's like, oh, he didn't want to make a bad movie. He wanted to make a serious horror film. But I mean, in the 80s, this, and I understand the movie took 5,000, you know, eons to to make. So it's not like he was, you know, he was comparing it probably to movies of the 70s. But even then, the, the, the bar is so low at that point in time for what counts as a passable horror movie that... I mean, well, and also I think like, how do you look at that script and say, this is deadly serious content that we're making. It must be treated with respect. Uh, Like it's just, there's a disconnect there that perhaps he didn't pick up on in the beginning and was like, oh, right. I'll just say I meant for it to be funny. And I think as somebody who loves Grindhouse, I think he's probably selling himself a bit short there. Because the the genius of those movies is that either they're filmed tongue in cheek, or they're filmed to the to the with such an eye towards you know budget and quick release and making money that they become subversive in of the fact that there's no concern whatsoever for, for social mores. There's no concern about you know what what about the children? Nobody gives a shit. They're just trying to make a boatload of cash, you know, and. Um, that's what makes those movies so fun in the first place. This was, that's their whole purpose. So I don't, I don't know. I like the idea. Oh, I was trying to make a serious horror movie, but you know, there's no, there's no point in making a serious horror movie, <laughs> especially in the 1980s. I and mean, people think Friday the Thirteenth is a good movie, and they're wrong. Wow. No. Okay, we're gonna have a problem. <laughs> it's 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 a good movie in the same sense that Basket Case is a good movie, and that it, it's it's a great film, but. uh I don't, well, I think this is the wrong podcast for us to be talking about, like, good film. Yeah, that's true. That's not the point of this thing. <laughs> we don't have time for that kind of shit here. I'm sorry. I just don't, the concept of high film and all of that, it just, it's bullshit. You enjoy a movie, you don't enjoy a movie. That's yeah, as simple as it is. And so Basket Case, to me, embodies that, like, pursuit of something greater than making a, a good making good art which is making something that is just like a whirlwind of excitement and there honestly is nothing like seeing basket case for the first time it, <laughs> it is just like completely revelatory experience and i think it stands on its own it's a lovingly crafted movie you know it took him a whole chunk of his life to make you know yeah, it's definitely several... more dedication than i've put into anything in my yeah. life so i mean Tens i've got to give him that of calories were the hot dogs, you know, I, <laughs> I did eat hot dogs for lunch today. So I am, I, I gotta say, I'm feeling very connected to him in his early days. Of you and Hen and Lauder and Phil Kessel just, just chowing down on some dogs. I mean, there's also the fact that by his own admission, he fucking loves exploitation films. He did yes. as a child. He still does. Yeah. Which is why so, I don't know why he wasn't aiming that from the beginning. Like he liked them so yeah. much. Why is he suddenly being like, oh, I'll just aim for a exploitation movie, I guess. It's like, you fucking love that shit. I mean, he does frame it in the interviews when he talks about meeting Edgar Evans. They start talking about making a commercial horror film, right? So I guess maybe it was like a money thing. They thought they were going to Initially, they had these big lofty ambitions to like make a lot of cash, and then it became very clear that they were actually making basket case. So <laughs> exactly, and I, I mean, I think I think one of the great strengths of, of the movies as a part, popular art form is that um, you can have, and this is going to sound disgustingly like capitalistic here, but um, that 
producing something that has commercial value can drive you to find new and exciting ways of making something that is not only enjoyable, but something that has a real like lasting impact, like Basket Case, something that changes the way that people look at movies, which again, I hate to be saying, but it's true because Basket Case is a really great movie. It kind of reminds me of like, uh, you know, Herc Harvey when he set out to make Carnival of Souls. That was based around the idea of making a bet that he could make a passable movie with no experience. And Carnival of Souls has become this, you know, entry, this this stepping stone, you know, in, in the horror canon. And again, that's, of course, that's the brilliance of the whole of of Hollywood up until, you know, the collapse of the studio system is the, is the pursuit of cash. And it leads people down winding paths they otherwise wouldn't have explored. And look at, I mean, well, look at somebody like Hitchcock. Once Hitchcock is not concerned about making money for the studio, his movies turn to dog shit, you know? This is an anti-family plot podcast. I mean, and now that whole concept has been turned on its head with them going for cash but making the most boring films possible to get that cash. Avatar 5. Fucking anything in the Avengers canon, I'd argue. I'm going to lose us our listeners before we even have them. Don't worry. Anyone who likes the Avengers movies is not allowed to listen to this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Banned. They've already been... I'm going to make a Twitter block list. (laughs) I don't care about your superheroes. And I think part of it is the fact that we have this gigantic um, kind of like wave, especially right now, of like disinterest in like movie making from like a craft perspective you know people aren't interested in all the things that make basket case great like they're not interested in practical effects for example which is one of the i would you know i think it's the greatest charm of of basket case i think it's the movie that thing that sets the movie apart is its wonderful use of props and people aren't interested in props at all right now it's not even something that's on the radar yeah i know just wait until our episode three we'll be talking about some some good old practical effects. Yeah. I mean, and Henan and Lauder comes... I mean, I, I don't know. I just... I would rather take, like, a million... I was a teenage werewolf or whatever over a fucking Marvel movie any day of the week. And I think it's that, like, the, the campy, ludicrous nature of, of horror is something that is to be, like, cherished. And this should not sound like an endorsement of anything Frank Henan Lauder has ever done in his life. <laughs> it's not but i i just i don't know i hate this whole idea of serious horror i mean horror is not a serious genre to begin with even going back to the days of the gothic it's not it's It's, melodrama it's not like a serious genre and the whole well we'll get into what we think of modern horror perhaps at another time but um yeah it's not a serious genre and i think if you're taking it so seriously then it just loses any kind of credibility or enjoyment that it could have had and becomes you know fucking another conjuring movie i don't know yes basket case is like almost italian feeling in that sense you know (laughs) it feels like a bunch of out of work artisans have just taken over a public square and just filmed that's literally what they did in the case of basket case and it's all about it's all about trick photography and it's all about i mean very loose understanding of licensing and copyright and photographing people without their permission and all the other great things (laughs) that you see in vernacular filmmaking. But of course it's got this edge because it's got such a fascinating story. Um, And it's a metaphor for circumcision, (laughs) which you can't say, you know, that's actually a very good segue into our next little story here. Smoke, smoke. I got joints and bags, nickels and dime bags, gold Columbia smoke. I got acid blotters, rainbows, window pane speed downs, second off volume mescaline THC. I've got some good cocaine, Quaalude, Beauties, Methadine, Chiba, Panama Red, Angel Dust, Chicken Out, Man, Tranquilizing, Enemies, Lithium, Poison, Tastics, Methadone, Other Rock, Red, Junk, Morphine. What do you want, some girls? I got some nice girls. What the fuck is wrong with you anyway, man? 
According to Kevin, we had bums coming up to us saying, if you give us 50 bucks, we won't steal your cables. And the Times Square shot in the beginning, you know, we were threatened while we were doing that. Nobody wanted their picture taken. Businesses didn't want the front of their establishments photographed. They didn't know what it was for. Then according to Hen and Lauder, and this is my favorite story of all time, in the film, there's a moment where we shot in a truck and Kevin is walking past 42nd Street. He passes a porno store. The first take we did of that, a guy in that porno store saw us. He was looking out as we were filming. He came charging out, racing at us, and jumped into the van, threatening to kill us. We were like, what? Why? He thought we were CBS TV. I don't know why. Kevin's the one who talked him out of it. He was like, hey man, we're making a movie. He goes, what? You're not the news? Kevin's like, no, look at our cameras. We're just making a monster movie. The guy's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I thought you were CBS and I don't want them poking around here anymore. I don't know what that was about, but that was the stuff that happened in those days. <clears throat> just visiting New York or? Yeah, this is my first time. So, have you gone to the Empire State Building yet in the Statue of Liberty? No, I haven't had the time. Haven't had the time? Well, what about Radio City Music Hall? Or the UN? Had time for them? No, I... I... Oh, what about the World Trade Towers? Or, or the trolley cars? It's not that I don't want to, but... The Met, the Cloisters, Scrum is Chinese. It's just that I don't know where anything is. Well, if you need a tour guide, I'd be happy to volunteer. We'll even buy you some 3D postcards and an I Love New York t-shirt. So this guy was so sick of CBS. All up in his ass. He's done. <laughs> I mean, we've all been there. We've all been there. We've all tried to invoke, you know, some sort of like, you know, voodoo chant to get Walter Cronkite <laughs> off our front steps. <laughs> it's almost just ambushing any passing vehicle in case Walter Cronkite's inside. <laughs> I'm just, I'm dying to know, like, I would love to have access to this man and find out why exactly CBS in particular, not the media, just CBS was, he had this vendetta. Well, you'd think it would be something that came out of that whole, whole anti-porn movement that happened sort of at the, in the seventies, but also maybe it's something more personal. Maybe Walter Cronkite split up his family with his views on the Vietnam War. Like, we don't know. Yeah, maybe Walter Cronkite. I'm looking for a circumcision joke. Please, I hope you don't Maybe Walter it. Cronkite personally conducted this man's circumcision, and he regretted it because he never saw a slash of the knife. <laughs> and he didn't realize that being left intact was going to lead him down uh, just into an avalanche of shame. And down whatever mania. road ended with him running a porno store on 42nd Street. Oh, there's there's so many roads that could that could be. <laughs> I mean, we could be on that road right now. We don't know. We could be. I hope we're on that road together. Uh, let's see. I guess this brings us to the effects, the puppetry, the stop motion, all that good stuff that we've already talked about a lot. Hell yeah! Belial is two puppets. He's one full size puppet and one hand puppet. Uh, Kevin Van Hettenrick provided the face model for the puppet and recorded the voice effects. And the hand puppet, uh, Hennen Lauder says, I took a glove, painted it red, and stuck my hand in so I could open and close it. Most of the time, that's me making Belial move and roar and so forth. At one point, when he's on a stretcher in the hotel room and his hand comes up, that's actually me stuffed inside the dresser. So it's a very practical, very organic, and it's literally just Hennen Lauder stuffed in a dresser making Belial. What did you say again? He was uh, shaking his something. <laughs> Shaking, shaking that nasty thing, I believe, is the, was the verbiage that I used. I just love, like, the idea of, like, Hen and Lauder, like, fisting Belial. Like, I hate you, know, you so much. Burr Tilstrom from hell up in there. I love this concept. Love that journey for him. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah you bet. <laughs> <laughs> I bet Candace loves thinking about Hen and Lauder greasing up his hand and shoving it up the... <laughs> butt of a misshapen conjoined i'm glad we have this recorded i just yeah. for posterity i don't know where that sentence was going it could have gone anywhere it could have gone all the way to us running a porno shop in 40 seconds from it still could just wait only time will tell so in addition to the two puppets uh there's a lot of uh belial stop well there's not a lot there's a specific very good scene of belial stop motion and Hennenlauter did that himself, but he had no patience for it, which is why it's so, let's say, choppy. 
<laughs> That's one way to put it. Do yeah. we decide? Did we decide that Belial is the way to pronounce it? Oh no, I just fucked it up. I think it's Belial. Because no, no, you're right. Because it is Belial in the movie. But then I guess like the actual like demon is named Belial or, or Belial or something. Because I was watching Twilight Zone and they said it, and I was like, well, I'm assuming Rod Serling knows way more about this than Hen and Lauder. When did Serling die? It was before the '80s, wasn't it? Um, I believe so. Yeah, let me see. I'm just thinking: is there any chance Sterling ever saw Basket Case? But I don't. I believe, hope he so. did. That's a shame. I hope he wept. He died in '75, which is unfortunate. Ah, uh, too bad. So, too bad. He would have loved it, because you know, I mean, a lot of those um, Twilight Zone episodes. I think I'm going to say particularly like in the third season ish are actually circumcision metaphors. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little known fact. It's a little known fact. <laughs> about the twilight zone (laughs) (laughs) anyway (laughs) anyway (laughs) yeah yeah especially talk about the stop motion yeah according to frank hennelotter quote i'm fascinated by it and i've always put it in my earlier films but i'm no good at it because doing even 12 frames per second is too much for me because I'm already bored by mid-second. I'm thinking, oh god, this is going to take forever. So that's why the animation is always so choppy and lousy. When I had originally shot the animation for Basket Case, I was so disgusted by my attempts at it that I threw the reel of film across the living room in my apartment and I let it sit there on the floor for about two months just to remind me of how bad it was. Like he's a teenage girl waiting for a text. (laughs) Then I thought... You know, let me look at it again. And when I looked at it again, I thought, why don't I throw out everything that was supposed to make Belial look scary and just use the scenes where it's supposed to be funny? And it worked out rather well. So I rewrote the whole scene around him having that tantrum in the hotel room. He's behaving badly and the animation is behaving badly as well. So it kind of worked. The second time I saw Basket Case in a theater and the stop motion sequence started, somebody shouted Gumby on acid. And I thought that's exactly it. (laughs) I mean, I love it, but I also feel like that could have been avoided by, like, taking a trip down to, like, the Animation Guild or something. I mean, like, hey, does literally anyone else want to help me with this? <laughs> yeah, he, he thought he could do it and got in too deep and immediately realized he'd made a horrible mistake, which is relatable, I would say. I mean, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. I mean, he fisted that puppet so much, you know, it was a part <laughs> of him at that point. <laughs> he couldn't let somebody else take over. It would feel like a betrayal. <laughs> moving on <laughs> so um apparently according to uh kevin van henrik originally it was meant to be belial that was running through the streets but when we saw the limitations of the belial we had we realized that was never going to happen no way so he kind of reapproached the concept as a dream and i ran through the streets it was february and even though i really didn't want to do it i realized it was going to be a really powerful addition to the film so we went for it so their story is that Kevin runs through the street bare-ass naked because they didn't want to animate Belial in the street. I don't know if I buy it. <laughs> Candace, your Necessity is the mother of invention. Also, streaking was huge in the 70s, so there's a lot of precedent to work with there. Last time we talked about this, Candace had some things to say about I don't Kevin remember at all what I said, but... I think it was like casting aspersions as perhaps he wanted to see Kevin shake that... Quote nasty. I mean, I don't blame him. He's a a tasty, he's a tasty little twink. I believe that's exactly what you called him last time. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's in my notes. I also have, he looks like Leo Sayer, all in caps, with an exclamation point at the end. (laughs) He had, Hennenlauter had recently seen an an unmarried woman, and he was that scene where they're in the bar and it's playing, uh, you know, Leo Sayer. And he's like, you know what? I've I've got something like this, and I should explore that. And it was the the Leo Sayer clone, Kevin. Tasty little twink. He's a tasty little twink. <laughs> Have we ever seen Kevin? No, we don't see Kevin naked. No, no, we do. Yeah, we, we do. do. Yeah, we, we do. see the whole scene. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was blinded, I guess, by the by the memory. I, no, I was thinking more like Basket Case Two or Three, but I don't think we because by that point he's like a good wholesome christian family man you know so yeah he wears a lot of sweaters in those ones they're very pastel like denim shirts tucked into his pants his chinos he gets a haircut it's not a good haircut yeah much to his detriment i was gonna say much to his detriment yeah (laughs) what were we talking about (laughs) nudity we were entrapping candace 
Yeah, I don't have anything else about nudity, I'm afraid. I don't either. Um, <laughs> All right. I'm, I'd probably think of something if you give me <laughs> I think that Hen and Lauder had to have a little bit of skin, because there's not a lot of skin in the movie. We see... There's a lot of belial flesh? Does that there's count as skin? I, uh, it's more like... I mean, I'd call it flesh instead of skin, because I feel like it has a, a meaty quotient to it, not like an uncooked chicken breast. <sighs> or a monster hamburger. Or a monster hamburger. There are breasts in this movie. There, Yes, there are. Yes, there yes. are some excellent breasts. There's some very fine breasts. And this, I mean, that's that's something, too, is um, that's a really <laughs> disturbing scene. Is this your leading? Is this your leading into that scene? Is that what we're going to do? I guess. How like, else are yeah. you going to tackle it? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I don't think we even talked about it last time. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if there's anything to say, really. We're wading into dangerous territory here. I just want to know, was that scene before or after he decided I'm going to make this a comedy? I mean, I I guess we should mention or clarify that we are talking about the scene where Belial, um, is she, I can't remember, is she dead at that point? She I, is dead. Yeah. Okay, so. so Belial, like, Belial fucks a corpse. <laughs> and Oh, so now we're afraid of a little necrophilia? <laughs> What do you mean now? I mean, how, <laughs> how are we going to talk about 80% of the movies that we have planned? How many movies do we have with necrophilia as one of the th- featured themes? Um, um, well, we've got Pillow Talk well, next week. So. we got Pillow Talk. There's necrophilia <laughs> in Pillow Talk. Um, that's what the pillow is about. That's what they're talking about on the pillow. It's about necrophilia. I've seen the movie. I don't know if you have, but... I mean, Greg Kinnear acts like he's a dead person. He's got a little bit of a corpse corpse-like pallor about him. Maybe let's insult Greg Kinnear after he's been on the show, not before. I don't know if I can commit to that, but <laughs> I'll try. I've got nothing else to say about that scene, really. Uh, I, I want to know where Hen and Lauder was physically in this. Like, you see fisting that's Belial as question. that's happening. Is he under the bed? Uh, Belial does, like, this movement that's, like, it's almost a thrust, I guess. But it's, it's just sort of like it would be a thrust if Belial had hips, which I don't yeah, think he, he does. wants it to be. He wants to be thrusting and he can't, and that really stresses him out. And that's kind of the the catalyst for everything that follows. Yeah, um, yeah, it's 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 rough though. It's yeah, it's, it's yeah, not it fun is to watch. real rough. And again, I'm gonna say it: circumcision anxiety. Yeah, Hen and Lauder again in trying to downplay this movie in a kind of interesting way says that he thought Basket Case would play on 42nd Street for a few weeks and then die quietly. He didn't think anyone was going to see it, he claims now. And uh, the first version was badly censored. Uh, Joe Bob Briggs actually was the earliest champion. He wanted to show it as a midnight movie, but refused to screen this censored cut. And last time I mentioned that, you brought up circumcision again, Candace, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly got of no memory of anything I said during that first recording. Yeah, it was it was when I said this. I said that he got his hands on an uncut version, and you have some comments to make on that. <laughs> oh yeah, all right, okay. It's all coming back to me, unlike a foreskin after it's finished. <sighs> God, <laughs> I guess we just have to make sure that Candace is banned from saying the word "circumcised" next <laughs> recording. Yeah, we're gonna talk a lot about circumcision in terms of uh, pillow talk. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, he says, uh, and not Joe Bob Briggs, uh, Hen and Lauder says, I never in a million years thought anyone would ever see the film. I just assumed it would play 42nd Street and some other Skid Row theaters and no one would ever see it. It actually horrified me when it did become a cult film. I'm still horrified at it, but what the hell, you know? Listen, I'm thrilled people like it. I just don't want to sit through it again, which is a lot like Amelia refusing to ever listen to this. We're on the same page. <laughs> oh, wow. Reader. <laughs> the library is open. <laughs> it's fine I'll, I'll just get them back later you're proud you're proud of abstaining from listening to this podcast yeah, just like I, I didn't real, listen I... to the first one and relive all of my good jokes yeah I, I know that I'm not funny I don't want to like have that confirmed I'm good living in that Ronnie, Ronald Reagan I never did anything wrong in my entire life mindset it's the second time we brought up Ronnie he's gonna be a feature on the show there are some really good Ronnie movies we could do. 
I mean... I don't think... I don't know if I've ever seen an entire Ronnie movie. There's one. Is it, um... Is it King's Row? That has, like, a very definite, like, homoerotic subplot. And okay. I think it's King's Row. It might be Brother Rat. I don't know. I'm mixing up my Ronnie movies, but one of those. One of those early 40s, <laughs> late 30s. Mixing up your Ronnie movies. A cardinal yeah. sin. Because they're, they're all so good and worthy of attention. They were worthy of him becoming president. I'll have to do a Ronnie series. Yeah, I'll have to do a Ronnie series. We should just do a whole episode on, on the worst movies of the Reagan presidency. And why they relate to the thematic <laughs> underpinnings of Reagan's America. What can we blame on Ronnie? That's what we're going to call that series. I'm going to blame him for Basket Case right about now. <laughs> I keep wanting to change it and improve it, but that's probably the wrong thing to do. I think the reason people like it is because it's so primitive and dumb and sloppy. I don't think anybody enjoys Basket Case because it's good filmmaking. I think people enjoy it because it's just a fun time. So he's right. I mean, that's not wrong. He's he's very right. Yeah, that is good filmmaking. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I guess that's the kind of the crux of the argument. Yeah, yeah, that's the crux of the argument behind this this podcast specifically. That's our crusade. Yeah, we we want people to understand that filmmaking and good film isn't necessarily high art. It can be basket case, and it it can be terrible film. It can be all of the above. I'm going to say worthwhile filmmaking is a spectrum, not a binary. Unlike circumcision. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck off. (laughs) Which is very much an either or situation. Honestly, is this episode just going to be called uh, What's in the Basket? The Uncircumcised Edition. What's in the Basket? Foreskin. (laughs) Foreskin's in the basket. Do you think Belial had the dick? Or did they both? I mean, what is he fucking with when he... He's got something. He's definitely got something. But he's also, he seems quite frustrated at the end of it. So perhaps he doesn't have anything at all. And he's just mimicking what he saw telepathically through Kevin. Oh, yeah, he's just rutting. Yeah. Um, Because, like, when when you see him full on in the animated sequence, there's nothing there. Unless it's like a shape of water retractable penis situation. Very. I mean, but he reproduces in... The later, yeah. There's there's a whole parts of the saga, but he could like installments. We don't know necessarily that they copulate the same way as other humans do. It could be some kind of like spore situation. I think this comes to a question of whether or not Basket Case two and three are canon in relation to Basket Case one, which is a conversation we'll have to have when we inevitably have Hen and Lauder on the show <laughs> to discuss the sequels. <laughs> Because there's, I mean, there's a whole Belial sex scene in one of those that we do have to talk about at some point in yes. our lives. Yeah, we have to. So for many years, Hen and Lauder thought he'd lost the original print. And then in 2011, his brother finds the original 16mm print in their mother's attic. And Hen and Lauder decides to put out a restored Blu-ray of the movie, as he originally intended it to be seen. So it's brighter and more colorful than the theatrical print, which embarrassed him, he says. Just like Metropolis. Wow. <laughs> I like that that was what embarrassed him. Just just that. It wasn't bright enough. So dowdy. I mean, again, if he'd used like a, a union DP, this might not have been a problem. I'm assuming. I don't know. Sorry to the DP on Bass in case you're <laughs> listening to this right now. <laughs> Sorry to all the, un- the people we haven't mentioned who did a really good job, given the circumstances, making this film yeah. happen. I mean, We're I all about think, the workers. I think the lighting is fine in Basket Case. I don't think that's a problem at all. I think there's a lot of problems with Basket Case, but I don't think it comes down to any one individual person's work except for Frank Cannon Lauders. Well, I think one <laughs> thing we did mention last time that we perhaps haven't touched on this time is the great array of extras and yeah. just other people that create the fabric that is around Dwayne and Belial and like really sets the tone and like really the whole mood of the film. So familiar. Dirty. Wait a minute. The media run over. It was suicide. He hailed a cab. When it pulled up to the curb, he jumped in front of us. Get out of here. You're full of crap. Company. I'd like a room. For how long? I'm not sure. A couple of hours? A couple of years? What? Give me a hint. 
A few days? Yeah. You by yourself? Yes, alone. By myself. All alone in this cold, cruel world. Yeah, it's definitely, it's one of those rare movies where you feel like the people who are who are playing street people are actual street people. <laughs> I mean, that's probably maybe because they are. I mean, but it normally comes across as so contrived and so artificial because people aren't, people can't act. No. But again, in my notes, I have the old uh, drunk in the lobby who I wrote down looks like a desiccated Frederick March, which I think is a very good description. I'm going to repeat it. <laughs> and I think that's particularly inspired casting. All, all the residents of the apartment building, are, um, the hotel, are, are people who you fully believe would be living down in the grime. And yet Dwayne and Belial are so obnoxious that, that Belial is the problem in this apartment building. I mean, they're really enraged when he goes on his little, his little tiff in the room <laughs> because that's how much noise he makes, you know. He's a chaos agent. <laughs> he really is. He is. What the hell's going on in here? Sounds like an animal. It's breaking up the place, man. Come on, man. Come on, man. Come on, man. Come on, man. Uh, after the 2011 Blu-ray, as if that wasn't enough, it was chosen for preservation and 4K restoration by the Museum of Modern Art in 2017. Thank God. So it's, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's quite a legacy, actually, for a movie like Basket Case, I would argue. Like, it's it's certainly appreciated, but it's also something that I feel a lot of people haven't heard of, let alone seen. I mean, I feel like there are probably a lot of films on that list that, especially this younger generation who I don't know if we can even call ourselves part of that generation anymore. Maybe Candace can, but there were so many films on that list that they would absolutely have no idea of like what it is. I mean, to be fair, I asked people at my office the other day if they'd seen the never ending story and they looked at me like I had three heads and (laughs) I was like, okay, I'll see myself out. They're just not seeing the greats, if you know what I'm saying. And they're seeing the Avengers. Fuck, yeah. aren't they just? And I feel like um, it being a, a MoMA selection was almost like weirdly appropriate because, you know, the, the whole situation with the Museum of Modern Art's film archive and, and the genesis of that and um, Iris Berry and the attempt to kind of provide like a... <sighs> I don't know, like a, a real documentation and attempt to preserve um, works of the studio era at, at a point in time when it's very, you know, declassé to, to think of any of those studio movies as being worth saving or right. um, worth studying. And I think Basket Case absolutely picks up where a lot of the studio it just it has such a great like such a strong studio influence even though obviously hen and lauder thinks of himself quite accurately as being like a product (laughs) of the the grindhouse boom which is all you know independent movies but you can see i mean there is like a real like very strong like 50s like american international like vibe and i could see some of those great old prop guys from the studios being involved in a movie like this you know towards the end of their lives when they need money to live so what you're saying is like he's a drug job creator <laughs> yes he stimulated the economy <laughs> he's like obama <laughs> in a way but frank had never like ran drones so he's better than obama well he certainly stimulated the hot dog economy in new york <laughs> <laughs> he also stimulated the <laughs> don't finish that sentence <laughs> Circumcision economy. (laughs) I hate you. (laughs) Moving hastily along. All right, so uh, we've got the restorations. We've got people actively working to keep Basket Case alive. And as we mentioned before, there are two sequels that we're not talking about today uh, from 1990 and 1991, both of which were uh, directed by Henenlotter, brought back Kevin, and retconned the deaths of Dwayne and Belial at the end of the first movie. It's really good storytelling. It's just, yeah, it's great storytelling. Like, just pretend that all that shit we did last time didn't happen. And it's fine. It's fine. Hey, I mean, if it works, right? If it ain't broke. But in 2011, Hen and Lauder had an idea for a fourth basket case that he described as ridiculous and radical, but he hadn't written anything yet. 
Then in 2012, uh, Kevin described his own unfinished script, which he said was more psychological than the previous films, and focused on Belial is a real character with 50-year-old Dwayne and Belial in, uh, encountering a set of female twins. So that sounds great. It sounds very intellectual. I feel like there's no horny content there. There's nothing <laughs> horny going on. And then uh, in 2014, uh, Kevin described Hen and Lauder as having expressed, and I quote, mild interest, but Kevin also expressed his own interest in directing. And that is the last I could find on the internet from five years ago about Basket Case 4. So I guess we'll see where that goes. Well, maybe we'll get some traction going for it with this podcast. Kevin taking up the mantle of Basket Case would be very funny. Like the muse, you know. Yeah. Going from being this the scene to the seer. <laughs> it's kind of poetic in a way. Kind of. Kind of, yeah. Not not really. <laughs> a little bit. So to finish up, what I've got are two quotes from Hen and Lauder on film that I thought were kind of interesting. Uh, first of all, he says, I grew up loving anything transgressive and shocking, and that's what horror films once were. Now, every horror film is almost embarrassingly mainstream, regardless of the blood, and very derivative of the last horror show and the one before it and the one before that. You don't want to be the old man sitting in the theater going, when I was a young man, we hated this shit, so I just don't go. And then on film in general, he says, look, let somebody else do that other stuff. Anybody can do that. I just want to keep it outlaw and unrated. Otherwise, leave me alone. Honestly... He sounds like me. I gotta say, I'm on yeah. I'm on the same page with him on He's that. Right. I think we we were a bit conflicted last time with our approach to Hen and Lauder, but the, he's kind of a kindred spirit in some ways. He in also some ways, yeah. The, he also filmed the Belial rape scene and yeah. <laughs> so many hot dogs. So it's it's. I mean, yeah, it's it's a spectrum. It's a spectrum. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I have a lot of respect for Hennon Lauder as a filmmaker. I think he's correct in in judging modern horror to be derivative and soulless, and but it's not even derivative and soulless in a fun and engaging way, you know, right. in this in the sense that like I don't know, like a lot of the um, I'm gonna bring up Friday the Thirteenth again, uh, post Friday the Thirteenth, like camp slasher movies are, you know, a lot of those movies are still are still engaging and, and fun and I, I just this whole like conjuring like Annabelle paranormal activity bullshit that we have going on at the moment is just it's so uninspired yeah and it feels like it's crassly commercial in a way that's like weirdly like mean-spirited and I say that as somebody who loves like commercial Hollywood movies it feels like no one is making and, and no one's having fun with anything. Those movies don't feel like anyone's yeah. having fun. Mm. Yeah, that's absolutely it. I mean, maybe Pat Patty is <laughs> Patrick Wilson. <laughs> maybe Patty Wilson's having fun. I don't know. He always seems like really like just constipated. I don't pretend to understand the psychology of the Pat. It's the same shit every time. It's it's like I think it was Amelia. We were talking the other day, and you said something about how it's just like the same old lady every time is the. You know, it is. It's like it's the nun making old women who are like kind of shambling, like they do yeah. their head tilt. They've got blacked out eyes, and it's just like fuck. We've seen this how many times ever since the yeah. fucking first Conjuring movie, and it's like we just don't care. It's boring. They can't even take like interesting settings and, and do something with it. Like when we watched that um, that Dan Stevens Netflix movie. That's set. I don't know. It's like a Dwardian or something. Remember? And then he goes to like the cult, and it's got that whole like Wicker Man vibe. But it oh, doesn't yeah. explore. Apostle. It just turns into yeah. It's just like the Conjuring, except he's like a laudanum addict or whatever. <laughs> I instead of a you know a bad sideburn addict <laughs> like Patty Wilson or um, a bad decision addict. Yeah, like James Wan for continuing to make those movies. They all attempt to make use of these, like, historical settings and shit, but they do it in the laziest way. I mean, we bitch about this all the time, but, like, the costuming, even, it's none of these... Every single one of the Conjuring movies takes place in, like, the 60s or 70s, and you can't fucking tell. Like, it's all just... It's, it doesn't actually use that setting. It's just... It's, like, a weird gimmick, and it's done so poorly. When they do, it's, like, you know, that extremely unsubtle... Um, 
periodicity is hard because you have to understand the period in, in which the work is set. And yeah. when you don't understand the period, it's like, well, why is this a period picture to begin with? Mm. Yeah, know? it's totally unnecessary in these movies. It adds nothing and it's just done badly. And it like, I guess for people who don't give a shit about that, it's not going to call attention. But it, for me, it does. I can't exactly. like. And like, so here's Hannon Lauder who cares a lot about setting. He cares a <laughs> lot about the context in which the movie is being made. I mean, I think there's also something that's really interesting to be seen in how, like, Dwayne and Belial are originally from, like, upstate New York, and then they, they come down to New York City to, to wreak their revenge. They come from this, you know, kind of, like, idyllic, like, middle-class community, and that's very much like Hen and Lauder coming out of Long Island to, you know, wreck yeah. shit in the city. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And he cares. He cares a lot about those. Even even in in the later Basket Case movies, which don't have that that same you know New York setting, it's like you still feel that um, greasy, greasy <laughs> element, that greasy ambiance. It's still there. That's a good word for it. They're greasy movies. Yeah, and not just because he had to grease his hand to shove it. <laughs> Shut up. Be quiet. Oh my. <laughs> oh, can we talk about the video? Where he talks about how he tried to turn the Belial, the original Belial figure, into a lamp, but it didn't work, and it decided to explode and started blowing smoke out the ass. Oh, fuck. I haven't seen that still. We need to link it. I gotta find it so we can link it in the show notes. Because to me, it really captures the spirit of Hen and Lauder and his, like, odd (laughs) reverence for, for Belial. I would take that lamp. I wouldn't mind that lamp. No. I think that's the point. Like, he said, like, it didn't function as a lamp. It just, like, combusted. (laughs) <laughs> and then Blyle was just like propulsively like farting fumes I mean it fits it does he eats so many hamburgers <laughs> you never see Blyle eat a vegetable ever uh, well he doesn't need he to he never had any roughage he eats a lot of tinfoil too he just eats his burgers <laughs> that's, his, that's his tin that's his the tinfoil is his roughage it's like spinach, but shiny. Oh, can we talk a little bit about um, where we see Basket Case's influence in in modern horror, just to kind of tie in why modern horror sucks? I was going to say, um, one of the few, I think, worthwhile mainstream Hollywood horror movies of the last couple of years, which of course was A Quiet Place, directed by Jim Halpert, um, <laughs> there is, because there's a shot uh, uh, in Basket Case when uh, Dwayne and Belial are being separated during the surgery and uh, their father comes down the steps and you see his feet going down the stairs and then he steps on a nail <laughs> which is exactly what happens to Emily right. Blunt in, in that pivotal sequence um, for which I left the theater and stood outside until it was over uh, and I feel like that's just maybe a little nod I feel like Krasinski might be a, a closet you know and in Lauder Stan. Um, that's all I have for this, but that was in my notes, so I had to talk about it. Well, I can't believe you wouldn't think someone would be loud and proud about their love for Hen and Lauder. I mean, well, if you're a true artist like John Krasinski, you should be. Come out, come out wherever you I would you say are. we should try try to ask him, but when we tried to ask Tina Carvey about the turtle, <laughs> turtle club scene... He didn't answer. He filmed on Like 9/11. a coward. He didn't answer... The questions about um, about the turtle club scene being filmed on nine eleven. The turtle club scene yeah. from um, Master of Disguise. Master, Master of Disguise, Disguise specifically for for yeah. those listeners who are not in, in the know about our our inside joke. We'll have an episode on it. Don't worry. <laughs> Just like we're going to expose. I don't know what else we're going to expose. We've made a lot of enemies already. Good. Who needs friends when you've got enemies? Who needs friends when you have a weird misshapen lump puppet with rudimentary genitalia exactly that's how the saying goes the big circumcision lobby taking me down again (laughs) yeah we should close the podcast so is there anything else we we think is important to talk about in terms of basket case I, i just think um even if you have seen it before experience it all over again knowing that the whole time they were filming it, they were on the run from the cops and people who hated CBS. Just fresh eyes. Yeah. And um, I think Basket Case embodies a lot of what is um, compelling. And I'm even going to use the word powerful. I'm going to use the word powerful about, <laughs> about, about film as, as a medium, um, as the seventh art. Um, because it takes 
concept that could be like self-indulgent and uh, quite frankly, horse shit and turns it into a really, not only just one really good movie, but three really good movies. And it makes um, some really, I think, concrete and interesting social statements along the way. (laughs) Not the least of which. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know the rest. Boy, don't we. I guess we say, yeah, thanks for listening. Um, check, Check our non-existent website for show notes. Leave a positive review. I won't say five star, but positive would be great. Uh, okay. So that's Bye. that's what was in the basket. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>